Good morning, everybody. Good morning. <clears throat> Just a little follow-up on the announcement <clears throat> about the um, Thanksgiving dinner after the second service. This, just a reminder, this is an opportunity um, for fellowship, which we are grateful for, and also it's a good time to meet someone that you may not have met before, and um, so I just want you to think um, how many of you in this service will return for um, the dinner after the second service you know what it feels like yourself to go into some place some large room filled with people busy visiting with each other and you don't hardly know anybody you probably won't do it um, but <clears throat> I want us to do our best to make people that um, you see are by themselves welcome and visit with them now Last week we looked at <clears throat> sovereignty, the doctrine of sovereignty, which is everywhere in Scripture. It is also a, a doctrine that <clears throat> is controversial. And there are some, I consider, severe error, uh, errors that we find in the view of the sovereignty of God. There, there are differences that matter. There are some doctrinal differences that are not essential to salvation and can be, we can live and let live. Um, sovereignty needs right thinking. And we need to understand it correctly um, as the scripture presents it. The doctrine of sovereignty there's really, this is a bombshell uh, definition here. There are two basic views within Christianity of sovereignty and how sovereignty affects the human free will. One says we have a free will. The other one says we don't. Okay? I mean, that is stunning wisdom. <clears throat> The one that says we don't is wrong. And it ends up leading to worse errors than that. We'll not spend much time on that. But we want a proper view of the sovereignty of God. Scripture I used last week was Psalm 135. Just simply says, God is great. He is good. And he does what he pleases in heaven, earth, the sea, and all the deep places. Or it means invisible places, things we can't see. A different scripture today, recognizing that God always deals with us as people with a choice and the power to make that choice. And a power that he gave us that he will not override. It's in Isaiah chapter 1, 19 and 20. Notice these words. This is an introduction to Isaiah speaking to the people of Israel. 
who are in trouble. God's judged them and they have a choice before them. God says, if you are willing and obedient. Now, there is, there's a little word on every page, virtually, of the Bible. It's, paid, it's given no regard whatsoever, it seems. It's the little word, if. If. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There you have it. God deals with us as people who have a choice. And there are consequences to the choices that God allows us the power to make. A little very bit of review from last week. First of all, sovereignty is God's absolute right to rule. His absolute right to rule is because he created all things. He owns all things. He is eternal. We aren't. He has the right then to rule in his world. Second, there's the exercise. How does God exercise that right? That's critical. How does he remain sovereign? And in his sovereignty, does he allow for his will in cases not to be fulfilled? Does his sovereignty, is his sovereignty such that he can allow his will to be thwarted and still be sovereign? There is a stream of theology that says no. He's not sovereign if we have the right to reject him. Which is, I, I've never understood those people and I never will. Um, the Bible, literally, thousands, not hundreds, of illustrations of God's will not being carried out. A very helpful distinction, I think, <clears throat> has to be made here. Because God has given us as human beings a will that is, and the power to choose, he, if you want to use the word risk, he entertained the risk that we would reject his will. He knows that. And in his sovereignty, in creating us in his image and likeness, which includes in God's natural image the faculty of willing, he gave us the same thing. He gave us the power to choose, the ability to exercise that will that he gave us. He not only gave it to us, but he honors it. He will not trample over it. He will not compel us. Now, in a moment we'll get to what he won't compel us about. God has self-limited then 
His will by giving us a free will and honoring it when we exercise it. He pleads with us. He'll hem us in. He'll do His best to influence us. He will use people. He will use events. He will use circumstances to bring pressure to bear on us. But He will not force us to do His will. Now, how can we then say God is sovereign? I think this is a helpful distinction. There are two kinds of will with God. And this, I believe, is critical. One, there is such a thing as God's will that we could term desire. His desire. And then there is an aspect of God's will that is His decree. So there's a desire. There's a decree. What's the difference? The desire is, for instance, Paul says, God would have all people to be saved. That's God's desire, that all would be saved. Are they? Of course not. Jesus himself said that the majority of people, and this is stunning and tragic, the majority of people will resist God and seal their own doom by their choice to go to destruction. He said, broad is, wide is the gate. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be that go that way. Then he said, narrow is straight is the gate. Narrow is the way that leads unto life, and few there be that find it. So God himself acknowledges that the majority of people will use their free will to reject his desire for them. Okay? God here in the scripture desired that Israel would allow him, cooperate with him, so they would benefit from his blessings being poured out them. In, in, in the Psalms, God says, I would have fed you with the finest of wheat, but you wouldn't let me. You wouldn't listen to me. You wouldn't obey me. And so you lost. Jesus, I used this scripture last week. Jesus wept over Jerusalem and said, I, how often I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks under his wings, but you would not. What did he say? Next verse. Well, I'll compel you to do it anyway because I predestined that you're going to be saved. No. He said, therefore, your house is left unto you desolate. And he said, they'll tear down these walls and they'll obliterate this city 
until you acknowledge him that comes in the name of the Lord. That's the Son. Now, desire then is that we all go to heaven, but we're not, not everyone's going to heaven. How does his decree then fit in? His decree, here's, here's one way with the same verse. His desire is that all will be saved. But if we do not follow him, obey him, trust him, love him, the decree, not his desire, but the decree that is unbreakable will go to hell. That's a decree. Here's another decree, not desire. A decree is, there is one name given under heaven by which men should be saved. The name Christ Jesus, Peter said on the day of Pentecost. That's a decree. We will go through Jesus Christ, faith in him as the Son of God, offered for the sins of the whole world, or we won't go. God's people will be through Christ, or we're not God's people. That's a decree. It'll never change. There are a lot of decrees. Desires can be hindered by our will, but not decrees. I can say, I, I want to go through, not Jesus, but I want to go through, you know, all religions are going to the same. No, because it's a decree. It's through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone that, we, that men are to be saved. So here's what the decree does. The decree involves the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation is decreed, but not the participants. God has predetermined from the foundation of the world that through His Son would be salvation and only through Jesus, through the shed blood atoning for the sins of the whole world. That's a decree. His desire is that all would willingly participate in that plan by bowing the knee and fulfilling God's conditions in obedience and trust and love. That's his desire that we would participate in the plan that's decreed does that make sense? I don't think I don't think we completely can understand what the sovereign will of God is unless we recognize that distinction. There's a desire God has and that is subject to our cooperation. I can I can exclude myself from God's plan. He will not determine that I participate. He desires that I would, but as far as the plan being altered, edited, 
amended so that you and I can choose our a different way? That's not going to happen. He's decreed that. That is an important distinction. Now, <clears throat> the only thing, really, the only thing that God's... Um, I want to narrow it a bit. The only thing that our will, where our will can function, and the only place where we can truly reject God's will for us is in the matter of salvation. In the matter of will I trust and obey? Will I love and follow and serve God? That window is fixed in God's mind as far as self-limit. He will not intrude into that realm of our decision-making and compel, overwhelm, force. He won't do it. He just won't. He has decreed that we have a free will. And He leaves it that way. But that's the only area in reality where we're truly free. Because there's a lot of things that we may will outside of whether I'll love and obey God that God can stop with the wave of His hand. Not everything we choose to do does He allow. We just have the realm of will I respond favorably to God's drawing and to His commands, to His call to salvation. I can choose there. But much of the rest of our lives, we can choose, but He may stop it. Only then in salvation is where our will can operate freely and it only operates freely in the matter of salvation through what's called prevenient grace we lost our free will in the garden of eden we were plunged into the bondage of the will but we could say instantly or concurrently with the plunge into the darkness of the fall and the bondage of our will, immediately God's grace was extended to Adam and Eve so that, remember, they, they could hear his voice, they could identify his voice, they knew who it was calling them. Third, he initiated the search for them and the invitation to come back. God in initiated that. Mankind never has. Not as a race and not as every single individual in here. None of us have ever initiated, Lord, I, 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 need, to, I need to seek for you. No, he's the one that initiates the call 
to us. He's the one that enlightens us. He's the one that gives us enablement to hear his voice, identify it, and respond to it. And I will give account, because I have freedom, for how I respond. The whole matter of accountability is shot if God doesn't give us a real choice. The notion that he predetermines from the foundation of the world who will be saved and who will be lost flies against everything the scripture teaches and everything just human nature recognizes. It makes God the author of sin, of all things. And I can't get too far off the subject. But it's somewhat popular today in evangelical Christianity. Now, I'm not going to get off into the history of it, but I can, we can look and see there's a constant ebb and flow of that miserable doctrine. It's so fraught with inner contradictions from just logic, scripture, human experience. Everywhere God is pictured as dealing with a person or a race, the human race, by appealing to our choice. I think it's Isaiah also that says, God says, all day long, I have held forth my hands pleading with a rebellious nation. That's not predestination. Predestination just squashes it. That's the end of it. God treats us as people with a choice everywhere. Now, to shift a bit and also guarantee us that we'll get out of here on time, <clears throat> you can't really separate God's sovereignty from another whole subject that is a difficult one and maybe more difficult to understand than sovereignty. And that is the whole doctrine of providence. Sovereignty and providence, providential acts of God in our lives, can't be separated. It's his sovereignty that allows him, as it were, there's nothing outside of God that, um, nothing can restrict God from the outside. But his sovereignty works its way out in daily life of nations and individual people. And even down to sparrows. He says a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground, that I don't know all about it. That is a micromanaging that we can't grasp. But providence, providence is a very... It's a complex but interesting subject. So let's look at that <clears throat> for a moment.
Providence is God's management of circumstances all the way from major to incredibly minor. We are always, this should be one of the most encouraging doctrines to the person who loves God, is that we're never, ever out of God's sight. We are before Him all the time. He is aware, literally, of the hairs of our head. There is nothing hidden from Him. There's nothing He doesn't know. He knows our inner thoughts, our fears, our hopes, our needs. Jesus said, let your requests be known. You need food. You need clothing. You need these things in the Sermon on the Mount. Then He says, your Heavenly Father knows you need all these things and He knows before you even ask Him. He knows. He cares about absolutely everything that affects us. There isn't any way to even grasp and describe how intimately involved God is in our lives. And He's got eight they just the clock or the the counter just turned. We're over eight billion in the world. I can't even grasp that. But God knows everybody's name. He knows their hearts, hopes, and fears. He knows the hairs of their head. There isn't any way to grasp how big God is. And that that God would condescend and bow down, as it were, to manipulate circumstances in our little lives is difficult to grasp. Providence, then, is really the outgrowth of sovereignty. And how, what do we mean when we talk about his management of circumstances? Minor, major. God, he opens and closes doors. We use that phrase. God seems to make a pathway where there wasn't one. He closes gates. He closes pathways that we may have planned and thought we were going to do. He shuts it. We often don't see His hand. We credit it to circumstances or to people. But how much of that is actually God? Again, when we get into the area of non-salvation, God manipulates circumstances. It's called providence. He, there, there are major issues that we know from Scripture. King Hezekiah loved God, served Him with all of his heart, was attacked Surrounded, besieged by Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrian Empire. And Sennacherib sent a letter to Hezekiah. 
It's a letter that Hezekiah shared with two people, Isaiah the prophet and God. He gets this letter filled with cocky talk from Sennacherib, who says, all of the other nations that I've conquered, how well did their gods do in delivering them from me? And he says, take that as a lesson. Don't trust in Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. No other nation's gods bailed them out. This one's not going to bail you guys out. I don't know what would have happened to him if he hadn't said that stupid remark. But the minute he said it, it was almost like God was on the hook. I can't let this blowhard get away with that. Same thing with Nebuchadnezzar. When he was getting ready to throw the three Hebrew children into the furnace. Kind of an afterthought. About the last thing he said. What God's going to deliver you out of my hand? God's going, you know, maybe I would have let him. Brought him. I'd have brought him home to heaven. But I can't now. I can't let that, I can't let that smart aleck statement go. And so he put an end to it. He made Nebuchadnezzar look like a fool. He's good at that. Hezekiah... <clears throat> took the letter, showed it to Isaiah, and then he took this letter from Sennacherib, he took it up to the church, he took it up to the temple, and it says he spread it out before the Lord. And, and he said, Lord, <laughs> read that. It's exactly what he did. God said, yeah, I can read. <laughs> and then he said to Isaiah, who was apparently out of the room, at least, but was praying, he said to Isaiah, go tell Hezekiah that all the stuff Sennacherib said he's going to do, because he had this outlandish, this letter said, I'm going to cast up siege mounds against, against you. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to bat, batter down the whole wall. I'm going to burn the buildings. And I'm gonna... God said, Isaiah, go tell Hezekiah. I've read the guy's letter. <laughs> it's not going to happen. He said, I'll make him hear a rumor. I'll intervene here. I'll stop his will. It doesn't involve personal salvation with Sennacherib. God stepped in and says, I don't care what you will. It's not happening. And so, I don't know. You know, if it was COVID, I don't know what happened. But that night, God killed 185,000 of his soldiers. And it says when they got up in the morning, I don't know who they is, apparently there were a few left, it says when they got up, there were just dead bodies everywhere. That'll make you go back home to Nineveh. Which he did. And he also said, I'll make him go back into his own country, and he'll die by the sword. He goes back to Nineveh, and he goes into the house of his God, maybe to find out what in the world happened. And while he went in to worship in his own, in his temple to his God, his two sons assassinated him. Every single syllable of what God said happened. And nothing of what Sennacherib said happened. 
Now that's providence. And it doesn't involve personal salvation. So Sennacherib chose to do some things. God just shut it like a garage door. He said, no, it's not going to happen. So God does that frequently throughout Scripture and in our lives or opens doors for us and leads us and takes care of us. There are too many to count in Scripture Cases where God thwarted the plans of people because he's sovereign and that works into providential care for his people. <clears throat> now, he opens doors, closes doors, causes paths to cross, to cross moves hearts of people, Isaiah also wrote and said, The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to command that the temple in Jerusalem that had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar would be rebuilt. God, it says, moved Cyrus. He was a total heathen. But God was able to just put it in his heart and put a thumb on his back. And he probably thought he got the idea. But it was God. And so he calls in Ezra. And he says, you know, you guys have been wanting to go back home. And Cyrus didn't know it. But when did that happen? After 70 years of captivity. The God through Jeremiah told Israel, you're going to have 70 years captivity way over in the east with Babylon, Babylon and the Medes and the Persians. Cyrus didn't know about that. God did. He never forgot it. And so the 70th anniversary comes and he moves Cyrus. Cyrus is clueless. Okay, <clears throat> you guys can go rebuild. And it turns out, <laughs> and uh, God is so... Well, he's amazing, and I think God's got a sense of humor. I don't have any question about it. He moved Cyrus to rebuild the temple, and Cyrus and the subsequent kings paid for it. That's the way God works. When he does something, he really does it. That's providence. He can do what he pleases. Now, Here's where providence gets a little bit foggy. <clears throat> Not every single thing that is apparently providential is providential. Why? Well, because there are other actors on the world stage. There's God who has a will, a choice. There's us who have a choice. There's also Satan. You've got to mix him into. He's in the mix. You have the free functioning will of other people, maybe wicked people. In addition to those actors, you also have a fallen world which is open to chance, to accidents, to diseases to death, 
to destructive natural disasters, all of those things, God balances. And we've all heard the stories of virtually every time there's some major natural disaster in our country, there's usually some interview with somebody. They may have been Christians and sometimes they weren't. But their house is left standing after the tornado and the whole block is just debris. And usually, God gets invoked in all that. Somebody credits God with that. Now here's, I, I don't want don't think I'm a liberal. It may not be that God did that. It might not have been providential. Because there are accidents. There are chances. So sometimes what we can as Christians... The world doesn't generally do this. Well, once in a while they do. I remember when, <clears throat> I remember the world can sometimes interpret things as God's stamp of approval on them because of a providential occurrence. There was a, this was back in the days when a service station was a service station. <clears throat> and a couple blocks from our church in Eugene, that my Oregon, that my dad pastored. And he talked to the owner, and he, who was the mechanic and whatever, and he would go, every time he'd go in there, he'd talk to him about the Lord, coming to church and whatever. He's a very friendly guy, and um, of course he expected that talk whenever dad came in there to buy gas or whatever. And one day... This guy never got right with God that, that we knew of and always put him off as far as coming to church. He never did. But one day he told my dad, he said, Hey, Reverend. He said, i got to tell you something. He said, I was under the lift, car up in the air, and he said, I got distracted going out and pumping gas and coming back in. And he said, I took every bolt out of a big transmission and didn't realize I'd taken every bolt out. And he said, I walked out from underneath it, having been there a couple minutes. And he said, the whole thing just came down. He said, it would have killed me dead. He says, I must be living right. You can't call everything providential. Now, maybe it was. God may have spared him. Who knows? Maybe after my parents left, he got saved. I don't know. We never heard... It could have been providential. It could have just been chance. That's why providence is kind of murky. When did God do something? And when did it just happen? <clears throat> Further, um, God permits, He permits other people who are wicked. In some cases, I told you about Sennacherib spectacular stymieing of wicked plans. But there were other kings who flattened Israel and it says dashed their children against the stones and ripped up with the sword the women with child. He didn't stop that. That was usually judgment it was punishment. But we all know that Christians, too, 
find ourselves puzzled sometimes. Why, why did God allow this? And you know what? There's a certain amount of providence that we either will find out much later or not until we get into eternity. Jesus, even on a small thing, washing the disciples' feet, said, what I'm doing now, you don't know. But you will know later. Sometimes later, we look back and we see Joseph. His brothers sold him into Egypt. Nobody, <clears throat> nobody figured anything was going on there. God did. He could have figured out a different way to get him down to Egypt and get him as second to Pharaoh. He could have had a thousand different ways to do it. But he knew he didn't prompt the, the, the brothers who were evil to do it. But he knew their evilness and knew they'd do it. And he permitted it. And it says all the time that J, uh, Joseph was in prison in Egypt, wrongly accused, it says the word of the Lord tried him, tested him. But then later God revealed, he said, I, and through Joseph he said it to his brothers. After they apologized, he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant you selling me all the stuff. God meant it for good to save many people alive. It saved the, the future Israelite nation from starvation in Canaan. They went to Egypt, there was food. God is always at work, and sometimes we can see it at the time. Other times we see it later. Other times we never see it until we get to heaven. God then, I've got to quit. God permits, and we don't know sometimes why. He prompts, he moves people's hearts, even if they are not followers of his. He won't move their heart and force them to love him. But he easily uses them as tools to bring about his will. That he can do. Because it doesn't involve forcing them to love him. Understand the distinction? Finally, he frequently prevents. And here's, here's the last thing to say on that. If God prevents stuff, how do I know it? The vast majority of things that God may prevent coming into our lives, harmful or whatever. How do I even know he prevented it? Didn't happen. I don't even realize it. So every one of us here, we don't know how many times God spared our life, spared us from a deadly car accident by some little piddly delay that we griped about. I tell you what, this morning, there was some person and it wasn't anybody here, so I think I'm okay. Some person that sat up here on moonlight or moonshiner, there's no one around. You can go in Wyoming when there's no one coming down the road. And they just sat there. And I'm thinking, what's the matter with this person? Um, how many times? Well, you do that. I, I don't do that. Um, we don't know what God spares us from, but sometimes a little delay, delay just like that, 
we avoid an intersection or something, and we never know it. But God did it, took care of us. Providence, then, is a fascinating doctrine. It's real, often closed off to us, but it happens frequently enough that we've all experienced it, and we knew God worked that out. So, sovereign, sovereignty and providence, total involvement of God in our lives. Let's pray that God moves the hearts of the people in the nursery to not be mad at me for going four minutes over. Dan, if you'll come and pray rapidly. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Although sometimes, Lord, all this is sometimes hard to figure out, hard to understand, but to simplify it for me today, Lord, here's what I know. You're good, and we're grateful for that. And no matter what happens today, we don't know what the day brings, and Scripture says that clearly, but we know who we follow, and we know you're good. So may we be a church who has a heart for a good God who has given all for salvation, and may we freely choose you and then choose to follow you today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.